Father, we thank you. We are humbled because we know, Lord God, that um, we've covered texts like Romans 1, where you have revealed to us, Lord God, that outside of Christ we were suppressing the truth, that we were um, repressing, Lord God, our psychological trauma of breaking covenant with you, and that we have ran away from you, Lord God, ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit, Lord God. Our tendency is always to run away from you, and our tendency is always to um, fear you, Lord God, though you are our only safe refuge. So, Father, help us today understand some of these deep truths. Help us understand um, the theology of apologetics and help us understand, Lord God, how we might apply these things in our day-to-day lives when we approach unbelief. So, Father, help us in these ways and help us um, be grounded in the gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just a quick recap of what we covered last week about the nature of unbelief. Remember, when we talked about Romans chapter 1, we argued that um, unbelief is primarily not a failure to reason about God, not primarily um, ignorance. It's not as if people um, could know God, but um, they just don't reason well enough or they just don't look for God hard enough. Rather, the primary source of unbelief is a willful suppression. People actually know God. And so what we saw from Romans 1 was everybody actually knows God. There is no such thing truly as an atheist. So the problem was not primarily intellectual. The problem was a culpable suppression. God's revealed himself uh, very clearly in this world, as Romans 1 has said. And everyone knows not only his divine nature, not only that um, he is existing, but also that he is wrathful against us. We've broken his law and we deserve death. And we talked about that as um, a traumatic suppression, a a traumatic repression of our knowledge that we are covenant breakers before God. So again, the problem is not ignorance or a lack of knowledge. So in our apologetic endeavor, an implication of that, as we covered last week again, is also not that we're just giving um, the unbeliever more evidences, more data for them to to comprehend or to understand. It's not as if they just lack information. What we're trying to do in the apologetics encounter is try to expose where they are willfully suppressing the truth. It's try to um, uncover that, try to unveil that, try to expose that, and so that they can't help it but now admit um, that they need repentance and not merely um, more information. So that's what we did for Romans chapter 1. We spent quite a bit of time there last week, about 30 to 45 minutes. And so in Psalm 14 verse 1, it also says that the fool says there is no God. Notice... um, the condemnation that the psalmist is placing on the unbeliever. He doesn't say, poor them and uh, poor us if we don't know God. Um, We just need more education. We just need more information. We just need um, better uh, ways of reasoning. That's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist does not say that we're innocent when we do not know God, but rather they're foolish and they're corrupt and they do abominable deeds and there's none who does good. They intrinsically connect failure to believe in God with a corrupt moral character. So the human person, then, is not um, divided between an intellect and a heart, right? The heart suppresses knowledge because the heart is deceitful. The heart is corrupt. And so last week as well, that's the status of unbelief. We talked about um, the nature of the antithesis. Remember that? We, We talked about how the antithesis was real, how it was radical, and how it was eschatological. Does anybody want to summarize what those three things mean from last week? Real, radical, and eschatological. 
what is the antithesis and what does it mean that we say it's real, it's radical, and it's eschatological? Right, so there's a divide, there's an enmity in history put in Genesis chapter 3, right? There's enmity, enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpents, right? Those who belong to Christ and those who belong to Adam. Romans 5 is another relevant text for that. So what does it mean that it's real and it's radical and it's eschatological? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So despite the harmony all right, that we see around us, the relative peace, the stability, that we always cooperate with unbelievers, there's still a real antithesis that, uh, that is fundamental between unbelieving and believing thought and believing and unbelieving persons. Okay, good. That's exactly what real means. So there's, there's a kind of faith principle there too. So despite the, the, the seeming commonality that we enjoy with unbelievers, there's still a real antithesis underneath that at the level of faith commitments. So it's radical. It's at the root um, what defines us ultimately is whether or not we are in Christ or in Adam. We're not defined by our commonality. We're defined by our lordship allegiances, so to speak. So what does it mean that it's eschatological? What does eschatology mean? Study of the last things, right. So what does it mean that the antithesis is eschatological? Right, good. Very excellent reading. Thank you, sir. Yeah, that's great. That's what the notes are for. You know, um, so remember the two circles that I drew last week, right? Um, it's eschatological in the sense where um, the commonality that we enjoy in between, between believer and unbelievers, the corporation that we have, the peace and the relative stability and harmony, it's only in the in-between time before um, Christ's second coming and after the fall. So there's a, there's a period of common grace that we enjoy right now that accounts for the commonality. And in the new heavens and the new earth, when both believers and unbelievers are fully consistent with their lordship allegiances, there will no longer be the possibility of peace and harmony between them because the hatred against Christ will be made very explicit and the, and the, and the love of Christ will be made so explicit that there will be no more sin and therefore there would be no more... Um, commonality between believing and unbelieving uh, persons and thought. So that's what the antithesis is. And remember last week, um, there was an emphasis then to account for the commonality in terms of um, a theological understanding of common grace. The commonality that we have between believing and unbelieving thought is not due to some area of neutrality, not some kind of secular space of the in-between where things are um, free of religious commitments, right? because that's the way our secular society wants it to be. They would argue that religion is a matter of um, private living, religion is a matter of what you do on Sunday, religion is a matter of what you do in your um, own personal life, but it has nothing to do with what you bring to the table in your jobs, in your public life, and how you vote, and what you do with your sexuality, right? They would argue that there's this middle public sphere that is free from theological commitments, totally neutral, totally presuppositionless, and, and unaffected by sin, unaffected by the claims of God and the claims of theology, right? And I tried to argue last week that there's a temptation that we will make this common middle 
as a, a neutral middle ground, and we just we were tempted to say, since this is where we have relative peace, let us get rid of the antithetical um, foundations behind that relative peace. And I also argued last week that the reason why there's so much ethical and um, intellectual disarray today is because people try to do exactly that. People try to um, just keep it at the sentimental level, try to keep it at the moral level, but without the foundations that are actually undergirding... Is this a permanent marker? <laughs> it's a permanent marker. Great. Um, someone get me an another marker that's not a permanent marker? It's okay. So people try to get rid of the intellectual foundations that actually undergird these common moral sentiments that we have in the middle. So people would say, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you don't hurt anyone else. Right? That's a common middle sentiment. Right? They try to keep that free-floating, free of metaphysical or um, foundational commitments. And they try to say that this is enough to just live in that, in that, in that secular middle without any ontological and intellectual foundations undergirding it. But you see, this is why, again, political discussions and public debates become um, disingenuous very quickly. Because when we start to push behind those kind of moral claims or seemingly commonsensical claims and try to ask what is behind that, how do you define what is harm? How do you define what a human person is? Why should you uh, ground your ability, I mean, in what way can you ground the moral claim that you ought to be kind to everyone? What is it that makes us tolerant people? Why is tolerance a virtue? The moment we try to push on these kinds of questions of why and, and try to push upon their foundations and proper definitions, people don't have a proper definition. And that's why people assume that they mean the same thing when they say things like, well, it's not harm anyone. People assume that they mean the same thing when they say people should be tolerant. But the moment you try to define these things, uh, we realize that our foundations for claiming these things are, are very different. And what I'm trying to say is, um, in the secular worldview, there is no possible foundation to ground these claims that we take for granted. In the secular worldview, how do you ground the claim that, for example, you ought to be tolerant with everyone? If you truly believe that um, everything is reducible to the natural, that there is no God, that there is no supernatural, um, you are, um, I think, forced to become intolerant to any religious believer. Because in your worldview, you have an understanding that every form of religious belief is delusional. Um, there is no such thing as God. And therefore, every kind of uh, appeal to the supernatural realm in the realm of the public sphere doesn't make any sense. So I think everything in the naturalist perspective actually tells you that you ought to be intolerant to the religious believer, whether Christian or Muslim or any kind of polytheism or any kind of supernaturalism. But from a Christian perspective, there are proper grounds that tell you you ought to be tolerant. Why? Because God was tolerant for you. Because you were once an enemy of God. You were once denying God. You were once suppressing the knowledge of God. And yet, God made space for you. God was tolerant for you. And you are not any better than the unbeliever. So should you then now go ahead and be tolerant with other people. So should you now engender a kind of community that accepts the alien, accepts the stranger, right? So the secular middle, the so-called neutral sphere, not only doesn't really exist because everyone is, is in the antithesis, 
but it's also not sustainable because you need proper theological commitments to ground the very things that we take for granted in the public sphere. And, you, and for a democratic society to uh, really grow and, and be nurtured and, and to be sustainable, I would argue that you would need the church to create the kind of virtuous citizens that democracy needs. So the public sphere actually requires the church. So that's how we account for commonality. Commonality is based on common grace and not based on a kind of neutral sphere. So this is all from last week. Um, and remember then, there are three aspects of common grace. There's God's general favor towards his fallen creation. There's God's restraint of sin. And God's enabling of the unbelievers' formerly good actions despite their innate depravity. Now let me try to um, clarify common grace a little bit for you. I skipped these two quotes last week, but I thought about it again, and I thought these two quotes are worth emphasizing. So look at what Calvin says in that first quote beneath common grace. Meanwhile, we ought not to forget those most excellent benefits of the divine spirit, which he distributes to whomever he wills for the common good of mankind. The understanding and knowledge of Bezalel and Aholiab needed to construct the tabernacle had to be instilled in them by the spirit of God. It is no wonder then that the knowledge of all that is most excellent in human life is said to be communicated to us through the Spirit of God. All right. Cal what Calvin says here is um, absolutely crucial and goes against what we think we normally take for granted about the Holy Spirit. When you hear about the Holy Spirit in common church talk, what do you normally hear? What is the Holy Spirit associated with in our church culture day to day? Sorry, go ahead, David. The one who talks to you in your head, okay, like, like, like randomly, like out of the nowhere, right? And have you heard this phrase before? Man, we make our plans, but we got to, you know, be prepared if the Holy Spirit shows up. You heard that before? Be flexible enough, right? Because the Holy Spirit might show up and destroy all our plans. You heard that? You're, you know, you're leading worship, right? And then, and then you know, Evan's laughing because worship leaders say this all the time. You know, I was, I was in a worship team in like various churches and also in, in college. And we, we say this all the time, you know, but you feel the spirit leading you. Just drop the song and just let it go, right? <laughs> like bring in the synth, you know. So that's, that's the kind of mentality that we have about the Holy Spirit. So notice in our common church talk, the Holy Spirit is associated with what? The non-common the um, almost spontaneous, um, disorderly, the, the thing that erupts out of nowhere, right? The thing that um, you can't predict, the thing that is completely um, different from or, or something that you can't anticipate. Something that despite your planning, despite your efforts to become an orderly, uh, to, to become an orderly person, an orderly life, an orderly worship service, whatever it might be, the Spirit comes in in an intrusive manner, kind of blows things up, and then you've got to say, well, that's the Holy Spirit's leading. We've got to follow it. I guess we've got to change all our plans, right? That's how we normally talk about the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, we talk about the Holy Spirit in that way as if that makes the Holy Spirit more special. That makes the Holy Spirit more elevated. That means we, we, we appreciate more of the Holy Spirit because we, we expect Him to come in the most unexpected, miraculous of ways. See, but what Calvin is saying here is that the Holy Spirit works not 
simply in the miraculous, out of the ordinary, extraordinary, uh, unpredictable kind of cases. Calvin is actually saying here, the very skill that the carpenter has to build something like an Ark of the Tabernacle, your, uh, your, your ability, your artistic craftiness, is itself dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. And I would argue that if you relegate the work of the Holy Spirit to the, to the unpredictable, to the miraculous, to the out-of-the-ordinary circumstances alone, you actually end up secularizing your worldview. Why? Because you end up saying things like this, I haven't felt the Holy Spirit move in like years. You know, we've just been doing our thing. It's just been ordinary for the last four, five, ten years, fifteen years. But I haven't felt the movement of the Holy Spirit and the kind of great work of revival or of a miraculous outpouring or a third Pentecost, whatever have you, right? You just feel as if the Holy Spirit is more absent, precisely because you've relegated and you have made the Holy Spirit's work defined by the out of ordinary, the unpredictable, the, the miraculous. But you've secularized your worldview because now you actually have made your sense of your ordinary life, your day-to-day, as if it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Right? You secularize your worldview in the sense where you feel his absence because there is nothing out of the ordinary, quote-unquote, in your life. That's a secularization move. And what Calvin is saying here is, no, what the Bible is saying here is, the Holy Spirit is at work, and he's the very person on whom you depend, even for the basic ability to craft art out of wood. That's what these two guys are saying. And if you read Genesis 6, verse 3, um, God says there, actually, let's just turn there uh, for a second. One of you turn there and then read it out loud very clearly. Um, Perhaps we can get um, Disa. Can you read Genesis 6, verse 3 for us? So notice there, what, is, what does the text say? In the face of human rebellion and of human sin, this is the, the events that, leading up to, um, that leads up to God's judgment in the flood, right? In the face of that, God um, says there in his judgment, my spirit will not abide in man forever. Instead, man is flesh and he will live only 120 years. What's the implication of that? Your very breathing, in other words, according to the text, is determined by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's determined by the very agency of the Holy Spirit. So not only is the Holy Spirit responsible for the so-called natural jobs like art and um, craftsmanship and wood, as um, Exodus 31 says and Calvin indicates, but the Holy Spirit is also the agent responsible for your common, ordinary existence. And this is also what we mean by common grace. It's grace precisely because after the fall, no one can claim um, that God is obligated to give them life, to give them ability to have good gifts, to, and there's no one that could claim that God is obligated to restrain sin after the fall. 
after the fall, we were supposed to deserve immediately judgment and death. The fact that we continue to exist, the fact that we continue to enjoy um, talents, is itself a product of God's grace. But it's a common grace, it's not salvific grace. It's a grace that everyone enjoys, believer and unbeliever, and believers, of course, before they were believers. So the question that naturally arises, if your common natural giftings is itself a product of grace and a product of the Holy Spirit, as Calvin indicates in Exodus 31 says and as Genesis 6.3, what is the difference then between the believer who has the Spirit and the unbeliever who has the Spirit? So in the most theological, technical sense, even the unbeliever lives by the Holy Spirit of God. There's an absolute dependence that they have upon God's Spirit. So what's the difference between the two? Well, John Owen tries to demarcate that difference here in this rather long quote, but keep up with me here. With gifts singly considered, it is otherwise. They are indeed works and effects, but not properly fruits of the Holy Spirit, nor are anywhere so called. So notice here in this Owen quote, he makes a distinction between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. All right? They are effects of his operation upon men, not fruits of his working in them. And therefore, many receive these gifts who never receive the Spirit as to the principle and end for which he is promised. They receive him not to sanctify and make them temples unto God, though metonymically, with respect unto his outward effects, they may be said to be made partakers of him. This renders them of a different nature and kind from saving graces. For whereas there is an agreement and coincidence between them in the respects before mentioned, and whereas the seed and object of them, that is, of gifts absolutely and principally of graces also, is the mind, the difference of their nature proceeds from the different manner of their communication from the Holy Spirit. So Owen is making a distinction there between right, the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. Right? And there are some similarities between them in the sense where God, in His Holy Spirit, puts effects in you, and principally through your nature and through the mind. But gifts of the Spirit are not implanted in you. Gifts of the Spirit are, um, in a sense, external in you. They do not make you, in Owen's words, a temple unto God. They do not sanctify you. The Spirit doesn't indwell you as the Spirit of the Lord indwells a temple. That's the case with the unbeliever. It's the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is a very different sense of the word gifts of the Holy Spirit than normal Pentecostal usage. And the fruits of the Spirit um, is a result of the Spirit indwelling you in such a way where the effects are intrinsically and internally wrought in you and by you, such that you can really say, because you're in union with Christ, the gifts of the Spirit are really your own works. There's a sense in which the gifts of the Spirit are so intrinsically formed in you and grow out of you internally because they're fruits that grow out of a good tree. There's an ownership to it that the gifts of the Spirit um, do not communicate. And I think that's a useful way of talking about um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which pertains to the unbeliever on the one hand, and um, the fruits of the Spirit that pertains to the, to the believer. Does that make sense? So, 
Any, any questions so far about that, by the way? David. Yes, and the work of God. You know, um, all truth is God's truth, all good is God's good, you know. Everything true, good, and beautiful. So the intellectual, the truth, um, the good, the moral, the aesthetically beautiful, everything. Um, truth, good, true, good, and beautiful. Aesthetics, morality, intellectualism, everything that is good belongs to God. Yes. And so I hope you're, you're sensing this kind of absolute dependence upon every person on God's Holy Spirit and on, on God himself, right? So if this is true, that the unbeliever is absolutely dependent upon God's Spirit to do anything for the talents that he has, for his existence, for his very breathing, then they are living in what Van Til calls um, borrowed capital. Borrowed capital is a, um, a useful theological term, not a financial term, that communicates how the unbeliever is dependent upon the very God that they're suppressing. And when they're living in this way, um, they're living still as God's image bearers, they're living still as in God's world and God's revelation and by the power of God's spirit, but they don't acknowledge the God um, that is giving this to them. Or in the words of Romans 1, um, they do not acknowledge him or, or give thanks to him, but instead worship the creatures instead of the creator and exchange the glory of the immortal God for the creaturely thing. So look at what Van Til says here. In Calvinism, more than any other form of Protestantism, the message of Christianity is clearly presented as a challenge to the wisdom of the world. The natural man must not be encouraged to think that he can, in terms of his own adopted principles, find truth in any field. He must rather be told that when he finds truth, even in the realm of the phenomenal or in the natural, he finds it in terms of the principles that he has borrowed, wittingly or unwittingly, from Christianity. The fact of science and its progress is inexplicable except upon the presupposition that the world is made and controlled by God through Christ and that man is made and renewed in the image of God through Christ. So Van Til is saying here, if those who are in Adam were completely consistent with his presuppositions, completely consistent with his foundations, completely consistent with his heart commitment, he would not be able to account for the kinds of good that he does in the natural world. If he were completely self-conscious, epistemologically self-conscious about his presuppositions, he would not be able to account for the good or the truth that he discovers in his life and in the natural world. There will be inconsistencies in his living and in his worldview. Again, remember the method of our transcendental apologetic, method of covenantal apologetics that we covered two weeks ago. Your task as an apologist is to expose these inconsistencies and to push them to become more epistemologically self-conscious and to show how they are living on borrowed capital. They're living and dependent, they're parasitically dependent upon the Christian worldview for them to really function. And um, to make this a little bit less abstract, so, so I've, I've given a few examples throughout the last two weeks, but um, the unbeliever lives on borrowed capital in the sense where he's dependent upon the Spirit of God and dependent on God, the God that he suppresses, in at least two ways. And... Um, this is, this is, this is I think, going to help us kind of capture how he's dependent upon God. So, we live in a pluralistic world, right? But the word pluralism 
is, uh, is ambiguous. There are different kinds of pluralisms in this world, right? There's pluralisms of opinion, pluralisms of um, race, pluralisms of culture, pluralism of structures, all these sort of things, right? And we need to be able to distinguish as wise Christians what kind of pluralisms are good things, what kind of pluralisms are bad things. For example, um, gender pluralism, that there's two sexes. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. All right. Okay, I hope that's not controversial, right? I'm supposed to assume that that's not controversial for you. Racial pluralism. Good thing or, or bad thing? Good thing, right? Are you sure? Yeah, yeah okay, good. It's a good thing. <laughs> right? It's a good thing. Why? Because you have a Christian worldview that says you have to be fruitful and multiply, and there's a sense in which there's a unity and diversity that's reflective of God in the human races. In the different races, right, there's a, there's, a, there's a diversity of languages, of cultures, but then there's a unity that we're all organically connected as, a human, as, as human beings, right? So, okay, you said to me that um, um, racial pluralism is a good thing and gender pluralism is a good thing, or general, gender um, binaryism, okay, but anyway. So, so third, okay, how about, how about um, structural pluralism? The distinction between church and state, the distinction between school and marketplace, the distinction between um, 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 the academy and the church, all these things. Are these, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Or say the distinction between the tech world and the, and the food industry or the hospitality industry? Depends, okay. What do you mean? Tricky, right? Right. Right. So, so yes and no in the sense, right? That's what I'm hearing, right? So, so there's a sense in which it's proper in this redemptive historical order for there to be a distinction between church and state, um, precisely because the church is not expecting to be a theocracy until the last day. Right? So there needs to be a kind of um, public order that maintains relative stability and peace and common justice, right? And that's the state. But there's also another sense in which, ideally speaking, in the last day, which is, you know, eschatology is kind of a norm for ethics, um, there is no longer another state because everyone is theocratically worshiping God. It's a benevolent theocracy, right? Um, so there's, so, so yes and no, but, but, um, but there's, but it depends also as which kind of structures we're talking about, right? But there's also this another sense in which structures are organically commanded by God because when God had said, go be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the world, there's another sense in which there he's commanding you to become um, 
um, vice regents of his lordship, where you are supposed to be cultivating culture, you're taking the raw material of the creation order and making them into human cultural products, right? So music, what's music? Music is taking the natural uh, world of sounds that you organically found, that are, that are organically found in creation, but then you're taking it and making them into song as a human cultural product. So all culture is, is a product of human endeavor that it works with the, the creation order of, of the world. You see, but there's a distinction between the music that you produce and the human cultural products, say, of um, schooling and bookmaking and, and science, right, and technology. So multiple kinds of pluralisms. The point is here, and this is due to the neo-Calvinist tradition, neo-Calvinists that stem from Kuiper, they would make distinctions between at least three kinds of pluralism. First is structural pluralism. Structural pluralism. They would argue that structural pluralism is, on its own terms, barring church and state stuff, um, a good thing. It's a good thing for you to have uh, the music industry and the tech industry and the food industry and so forth and so on, and people have a division of labor among these different industries, different structures, right? There's the family also, there's also the school, there's the university, and these things are human cultural products. They're not intrinsically there in creation, but as human beings work with creation, there are different structures that organically arise out of that endeavor, right? So structural pluralism, according to the Kuyperians, um, is a good thing. You should celebrate that to a certain degree. So people should engage in different kinds of work. There's also, they would argue, a cultural pluralism. which resists any form of cultural hegemony and every, any form of cultural colonialism, right? Colonialism says that only one cultural sh culture should abide and only one culture should be manifested throughout all of the world. And there's a kind of superior form of culture. But the Bible says that cultural pluralism, you know, the reason why the Chinese culture in its aesthetics and its uh, life form is kind of different from, say, Indonesian culture or from say the Dutch culture or say from the American culture, there's a sense in which these cultural pluralisms is to be celebrated. And where do we get this from the Bible, right? In Revelation, you see all the tribes and nations and tongues praising God. So in the new heavens and the new earth, God doesn't eradicate diversity. God doesn't create uniformity. Instead, he celebrates that many people of different kinds of cultures and languages and nations and tribes are all celebrating him and worshiping him together, right? So cultural diversity is intrinsically a good thing. We don't want everybody to be speaking just one language. We don't want anybody, everybody to be wearing exactly the same things. There is no cultural uniformity to be expected. And that's an important uh, affirmation because then now you can say that Christianity should, in a sense, look different from country to country. You shouldn't feel the same when you go into an African church and when you go to an American church, you know, in a cultural sense. The theology might be the same, but the culture could be very different, you know. Um, one, sorry, Jackie. It means uniformity, cultural uniformity. Okay, so, um, so for example, right, when I went to, when I was in Scotland, every Sunday after church, 
They expect you to go to somebody's house, have Sunday roast, um, and then do devotions from 4 to 6, and then go to evening service, and then go to another Bible study after evening service. That's Scottish Presbyterianism. And that's, that's their cultural way of upholding the Sabbath day. Right? T- rest from daily work, but engage in the church the whole day. Right? In all kinds of ways. And I think there's a lot of good things about it. In Jakarta, for Sabbath day, what do you do? Move, all right? <laughs> so, um, and, and for some, that, that's, like, that's like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. Right? You notice at church, uh, we're kind of making fun of ourselves, but it's okay. Um, we, we end up in church. We have lunch, we have coffee, some of you go and work out together, and you have dinner together, or a movie afterwards too. That's like the whole day, man. Others of you maybe have come from a different culture where you go to, you go to morning church, and then you go home, and then you go to evening service, and that's it. But there's, there's different cultural expectations, though it's the same Sabbath principle. You're trying to live it out. I hope you're self-consciously trying to live it out. So maybe if this is the first time you've heard about the Sabbath, talk to me afterwards. Yep. Right. Okay. Um, like, Sorry, say that last word, last sentence again. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense in which being a third culture kid is, is itself a different culture. And there's a reason why international kids end up with international groups in colleges, right? Because they feel like they're not really connected to the Americans, but with the local Indonesians who've maybe never been outside of the country before, you also feel kind of like, okay, there's a different culture here, but then you end up with the third culture kids, say from India or like Korea or wherever, right? So there, that, there's a sense in which that itself is a different culture. And there's a big debate in scholarly literature um, whether every church should strive to be culturally um, 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 diverse, or should there be like appropriately like, you know, some churches are, for example, in the states, you're probably aware there's like a Chinese Reformed Church, and then like Korean Presbyterian Church, and there might be an impulse in you that says, why should these churches be demarcated in terms of their ethnicity? Why should there, why should that be distinctive in their name, right? And then anyway, that's a complicated debate. So, but let's let's take away from that but but in the cultural sense there's there's a pluralism in culture that you should respect and love right so for the hyperians or those who follow in the theology of abraham kuyper um, these two things they would argue are creational goods and these are byproducts or um, effects of living in god's creation and therefore um, living out his mandate and they would argue that believers and unbelievers inevitably will end up making some kind of a structural pluralism and making some kind of a cultural pluralism precisely because they can't help but feel God's obligations in them. Um, the moment you grow up, the moment you, you go into society, you're asking yourself these sort of questions. What society do I belong to? What kind of work should I engage in? Because the mandates of Genesis chapter 2 stay with you even when you're not a believer. You're intrinsically made in the image of God and you can't help it but live that out. You're living on borrowed capital, right? There's a third kind of pluralism, however, that is, is to be accepted but not celebrated. Very different. These two things, to a certain degree, they're not only to be accepted, expected, and celebrated, but this third uh, kind of pluralism, what they call directional pluralism, is 
is to be expected, is to be accepted, but not celebrated. In this present order, between the fall and Christ's second coming, you should expect there to be multiple worldviews, multiple directions of life against God or for God, um, against certain ethical principles and, against, and, and for other ethical principles. These are the ways in which people are governing their lives, the worldview that governs them, their, their heart commitments, their behaviors, their worldviews, their directions. And you're expecting these things to take place. Like, of course, people will disagree with you. Of course, there will be people who believe in different religions, people who don't believe in Christ, in other words. Of course, you expect that in the common grace order. But you don't celebrate that. You long for the day where everyone will be directionally for Christ and standing upon Christ. So these three kinds of pluralism, I think, communicate really well what it means to live on borrowed capital. That despite people living in lives that are directed against Christ and for the Antichrist, um, they still enjoy and um, inevitably, irresistibly um, end up living in a way that enjoys cultural pluralism. They engage in their own culture. They, they make culture. And they also engage in structural pluralism. They work in schools. They work in banks. They work in hospitals. They work in all these things. And they feel the responsibility of the cultural mandate irrespective of whether or not they're directing their lives for God. So despite their directional pluralism that denies Christ, they continue to enjoy the structural and cultural pluralism that is part and parcel of what it means to live in God's created order. So not only is the agency of the Holy Spirit important, but also the enjoyment of God's inevitable um, facets of creation important. Right? Whether or not you're a believer or unbeliever, you end up working in jobs, you end up in a different culture, and you end up feeling the weight of responsibility to your culture, to your jobs, to the structures in which you belong. But you can either direct yourself in those structures, in those cultures, for Christ or against Christ. Questions? Uh, well, structural pluralism is to be celebrated because we don't expect everyone, for example, to be, say, um, bankers, right? Um, just because you're a banker, um, you don't expect everyone to be a banker with you. But instead, you celebrate it when you go to a concert that, say, um, John Mayer is a musician and not a banker, right? That's a silly example. You see what I mean? And you, there's another sense in which you celebrate that... Um, your favorite local chef isn't a banker and is making this great steak for you. Like they, they're, they're participating in the structure of food making, right, so to speak, whereas you're participating in, in the structure of banking, you see. So you're celebrating the fact that not everyone end up in the same occupations and vocations in the same structures. So there's a pluralism of structures. Banking is different from food making, different from music making, different from um, hospitality, right? And it, I mean depending on how you define hospitality. So you see what I mean? Yeah. yeah.
I think it's, it's one, uh, being faithful to Scripture. So when they see things like Genesis 2, the fact that you're to be fruitful and multiply, take dominion and make culture, right? And the fact that they see things like um, the division of labor among Israel, that some people are called to make houses and to craft the Ark of the Tabernacle. Other people are called to preach. Other people are called to monitor um, uh, farming, right? These are just facets of God's covenant life and God's covenant people and God's creation order. Um, and so they're really just observing what Scripture says and trying to be wise as they live out in creation because if you're not, I think if, you're, if you don't make up this, these distinctions, you'll end up saying things like, well, uh, you, you'll, you'll end up saying unwise things like, well, that's just Chinese culture. Chinese culture is unbiblical. Well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that like um, giving red packets in the month of February is unbiblical? No, right? Maybe you mean by that uh, patriarchalism is unbiblical. Okay, let's talk about that. That's a directional thing. That's a worldview thing. But whether or not you wear red or whether or not you wear batik, right, it's completely um, irrelevant to the directional structure, I would, I would argue anyway. Unless you're wearing skimpy clothing all the time, then maybe there's a directional thing underneath your cultural endeavor, <laughs> right? This, you see? So directional pluralism can create structural pluralisms that are unbiblical. For example, again, the pornography institute, I mean, <laughs> industry should not exist, right? No Christian can say, I'm a Christian, but I just happen to be shooting porn. You just don't do that. You can't do that. You can't say that God has called you to do that, right? <laughs> um, so so, so that's, a, that's a structural um, growth, right? In other words, the, pornogra the por pornographic industry um, was, was, was um, organically, it grew out of history. In other words, there was a time where the pornographic um, industry did not exist. But it became to exist because people live in directional pluralism, and people live against God, and they deny God's standards for... Um, the, the, the purposes of marriage and sex, and they end up with creating a new structure. Does that make sense? So this is all very connected. Uh, well, that's just, I mean, it's just, it's just its own thing, I would say. Yeah. Um, it's just, but there's, technically it's not a pluralism because pluralism implies more than two. So it's, it's gender binaryism, I guess, or gender duality. All right, so that's how uh, we could be wise. Um, let's take a, like a five to 10 minute break. I think that's enough for this first half. All right, all right, all right. Cool. All right, guys, we're going to start again. Go like guinea leggy? No, whatever it is. Okay, okay, cool. All right, um, let's bring it back. Let me just clarify, friends. Um, Anthony asked a good question just now that um, structural and cultural pluralism are good things because um, in a hypothetical world where Adam and Eve obeyed God and there was no fall, and they continued to be fruitful and multiplied, and they laid dominion over the world, structural and cultural pluralism would still arise. You notice? There would be multiple nations, multiple families, multiple kinds of work, labor, right? Divisions of labor. These are um, inevitable outcomes of creation. Um, 
the only thing that arose out of the fall, really, was directional pluralism in terms of human culture. Um, people continue to enjoy the structural and cultural pluralisms that inevitably will grow out of um, um, obedience unto God and living in God's world and God's revelation and God's cultural mandate. But directional pluralism was really a result of the fall. Because of the fall, people now listen to the voice of the tempter and listen to the voice of Satan and follow their own gods instead of the true God. So that's why we celebrate structural and cultural pluralism, but we do not celebrate directional pluralism. Directional pluralism, in other words, is itself a product, a product of a post-fall world. Okay? That's just a clarification. Any other questions before we move on? No? Okay, cool. We'll move on. All right, friends. So, I, I'm, I mean, I'm tempted because there's like two and a half, one and a half pages here um, to just get to the Trinity, but we shouldn't. All right? So let me just uh, really quickly cover what common grace is not, okay? Common grace is not special grace. In other words, common grace does not um, enable you to become saved. Common grace is enjoyed by the unbeliever and allows him to participate in structural and cultural pluralism despite his direction against God. Common grace restrains sin. It gives good gifts to the unbeliever and enables the unbeliever to produce good in and of himself. But common grace does not alleviate um, your incapacity to choose God. Total depravity means that you're totally incapable of choosing God with respect to your own will, right? Total depravity means that apart from common grace, you would be completely evil, yes. And common grace restrains your depravity, but common grace does not um, renew your ability to become obedient unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Only regeneration does that. Only being born again does that. Only being given the Holy Spirit as a fruit does that. So common grace is not special grace. Special grace is given only to the elect, only to those who um, God has chosen before the foundation of the world so that they might um, become capable and irresistibly willing to have faith in Christ. Special grace renews your nature. Common grace does not. Common grace does not renew your capacity and your ability to believe in God. So common grace, then, is not only special, it's not only not special grace, and that's within Reformed theology. Common grace is also not prevenient grace. Right? So common grace is not uh, special grace, but prevenient grace is also something utterly different. Prevenient grace is the term that Arminians uh, historically um, describe about God's favor to every human being. In historic Arminianism, um, Arminians believed in the doctrine of total depravity, which is different from today's Arminianism. Historic Arminianism, which refers to the um, 16th to 17th century teachings of Jacob Arminius and his followers, They believed in the doctrine of total depravity. They believed in the testimony of Romans chapter 3 that no one does good, no one is capable of doing good, and so they're, they're also going to believe that um, apart from the Spirit of God in grace, 
there would be no good that the unbeliever does. That's historic Arminianism. So today's popular Arminianism that says you intrinsically still have free will to do good even after the fall is not what Jacob Arminius believed. Jacob Arminius, the, the father of Arminianism, was a stronger Calvinist than today's Arminians. Jacob Arminius uh, could not resist the testimony of texts like Romans chapter 3, like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that says that apart from the Holy Spirit of God, there will be no good left in and of yourself. So, how did they account for the good of the unbeliever? How did they account for the restoration of people's free will so that anyone could choose God? Well, um, instead of positing a theology of common grace, they posited a theology of prevenient grace. Prevenient grace for them is a universal grace of God given to all people that restores their free will. Their free will especially to have faith in Christ. Prevenient grace is a universal grace from God to all people that restores their free will so that they might have faith in Christ. Notice how that's different from common grace, right? Common grace restrains sin and gives you the ability to do good, but does not renew your capacity or your ability to believe in God. It does not restore your freedom of the will in such a way where you can now have faith, saving faith in Christ. Whereas Jacob Arminius' doctrine of prevenient grace eliminates total depravity and says that your will could either be bent to have faith in Christ or not. It's completely dependent upon you. But here's the tricky bit about historic Arminianism. Notice how they can now reply to the Calvinist who says, but that means that you're not really fully dependent upon God. It's not by grace alone. Historic Arminianism says it's still completely by grace alone because of this initial step of prevenient grace. Because apart from prevenient grace, you don't have free will anymore to believe in God. But because they have this first step of prevenient grace that reestablishes your ability to believe in God, and now it's up to you technically to believe in God, but that up to you-ness, so to speak, that um, renewed capacity to believe in God out of your own free will is itself a gift of universal prevenient grace. It's, it's a first grace, so to speak, that renews your free will and eradicates total depravity in every believer. And every unbeliever, sorry. And then, because God has given this prevenient grace, all God has to do is look upon the corridors of time and choose those who utilize this first grace so that they receive a second grace. That is the gift of salvation. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, for the Arminian, the, the classical Arminian, they would argue that your initial, again, just to repeat myself, your initial ability to believe in God is still because of God's prevenient grace. And those who cooperate with this first grace end up receiving a second grace, which is saving faith, which is eternal life. So there's a, a double grace, but different from Calvin's double grace. It's, it's, it's a double grace in the sense where this first grace reestablishes your capacity, the second grace is for those who cooperate with that first grace. So prevenient grace is not common grace. Common grace is a reformed category. 
prevenient graces in Arminian category. So that's just a clarifying common grace. And um, common grace is also not a Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic understanding of nature and grace. Um, I'm tempted to just skip this, but maybe I shouldn't. Um, how many of you guys are interested in the Roman Catholic understanding of nature and grace? Okay, a lot of you are. Okay, never mind. I won't skip it. Uh, good. So in the Roman Catholic understanding of nature and grace, this is kind of um, complex, and I want to do justice to it. So stick with me here. This is a thick marker, huh? So in the Roman Catholic understanding of nature and grace, to really comprehend what they're trying to do here, um, let me just reestablish what happens at the fall for those of us who are reformed. In the fall, um, nature, for those who are reformed, is corrupted. Right? This is a result of the fall. This is, the, 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 this is why we believe in total depravity. In the fall, mankind's nature is ruined and corrupted and incapable of doing good, it is broken. There is a, an intrinsic ruinedness to humanity's nature after the fall. In other words, the image of God in man after the fall is not remained intact. The image of God in man after the fall still remains. You're still image bearers of God, but you're no longer functional as the image bearer of God. You're broken. The image of God in you is no longer um, intact. It is ruined and marred by the fall. So though you are in your being still made in God's image, you no longer function as God's image. You're broken. So there's a real sense in which, in redemption, we would argue that your nature is renewed, right? Renewal. Your nature is no longer corrupted the way that it was after the fall. Your nature is renewed such that you can now function better as God's image bearers. So that should be non-controversial for you. And in fact, for some of you, you might, be thinking, you might be thinking, well, duh, right? That's clear. That's obvious. But in Roman Catholic uh, Neotomism, especially in, in the Counter-Reformation, um, they would argue that Adam, before the fall, was composed out of two parts. There is his natural capacity, And then there's a supernatural gift. And this is a product of grace. It's a donum superadditum, which means it's a gift that is superadded. This supernatural gift of God is what enabled Adam to obey God in the garden. The supernatural gift of God is also um, it's a super added gift, which means that it is added to your nature. It is not something intrinsic in your image-bearing capacity. It is not something intrinsic to who you are as a human being, right? It's a super added gift. It's not something integral to who you are. It's a gift of grace. So they would argue that apart from this supernatural gift of God, Adam would have been incapable of reaching God. Adam would have been incapable of reaching obedience unto God. Okay. 
So what allows Adam to obey in the garden is not his intrinsic capacity as an image bearer of God, but rather a superadded gift that God gives. So, what happened at the fall? This is the Reformed view, and this is the RC view. Nature is corrupted. This is, this is our Roman Catholicism in the 16th, 17th century. Can you guess what happened at the fall? The gift is gone. At the fall, then, what happened to Adam was not that his nature became corrupted. No, his nature is completely intact. He still functioned perfectly as a human being. All that he lost was the superadded gift of God. But as a natural human being, he was still fully functional. He was still able, in other words, to um, produce cultural works. He was still able to think about natural things. He was still able to be completely intact with regard to natural morality. So the Roman Catholic structure makes a distinction between natural capacities and supernatural capacities. And they would argue that after the fall, your capacity to think, your capacity to morally live out in normal ways, in natural ways, is still intact, and your capacity to uh, produce cultural works remains intact. In other words, in this view, after the fall, grace is not necessary for natural goods. Grace is not necessary for natural goods. Grace is only necessary to elevate you so that you might reach unto God. And this is completely connected to their view of the church because the church is where the supernatural gift is given to the natural person. And that's a long discussion. So that's why they would have a view of the Mass where the priest mediates supernatural giftings unto nature. The church, in other words, for them, is a second step of supernaturalism that the first step anticipates, but in the technical sense, the first step does not need. So this is why in Roman Catholic apologetics, they would argue that um, revelation or the resources of the Bible is not necessary as a first step of apologetics. That's a second step. Instead, you just argue with them on the basis of reason and nature alone. Whereas we would argue that because nature is corrupted, Christian apologetics' task is to tell them what they're suppressing, to tell them that they can't function apart from the church, to tell them they can't function about, apart from the Spirit, to tell them that they're, they're, they're actually dependent upon the Spirit of God to do what they do. In, natural, in, in Roman Catholic natural law apologetics, um, they don't need to appeal to the Holy Spirit or the church. Instead, the church's task is to remind them of what they're missing, uh, the second step of existence that, that, that is good for them. Let me just produce some proofs here about, um, from a Roman Catholic theologian. So um, this is from Bernard Mulcahy. He was a, a, a friar for Roman Catholicism in his book on Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas's notion of pure nature and the Christian integralism of Henri de Lubach. And notice the um, subtitle, Not Everything is Grace. Catholicism, this is in the second and third quote of this page underneath the Cayman quote. 
Thomas contends that the natural, God-given light of the human intellect is what makes the Gentiles, or unbelievers, and for that matter, all humans, a law to themselves. Without revelation, and even in our fallen state, human intelligence is able to frame general principles of right reason. Um, so they would argue that the supernatural sphere is really distinct from the natural sphere. The natural sphere has its own integrity and has its own self-sufficiency to produce its own goods and produce its own works. It is not the church's task to illumine the natural sphere, but rather the natural sphere is completely self-sufficient. That's why when you, when you read Roman Catholic apologetics in terms of marriage or gender, if you just, for example, go to firstthings.com, it's a Roman Catholic um, magazine, they would argue that you don't need the Bible to argue for gender, um, the marriage between two genders. You just need natural law. Just point to statistics, just point to our natural common sense intuitions. To appeal to the Bible at that point, they would say, is to lose the cultural war. And notice the second quote here. Thomas Aquinas, the, the Roman Catholic theologian of the 12th century, in his interpretation, compares two ways of knowing, the natural philosophical and the supernatural Christian and theological, and tells us that each has its own method. Against all psychological themes, notice psychological. Remember what I said about Romans 1. What did I say about Romans 1? It's suppression, it's on the, on the basis of what? The psych, it's psychological. You psychologically repress your traumatic suppression of your knowledge of God, right? Notice what he's saying here. Against all psychological theories, namely reformed theories of supernatural illumination, which means that your psych needs to be renewed by God for you to understand even the world, Thomas insists that the natural human intellect is itself the means by which God creatively and providentially endows us with understanding. Our nature, he insists, is sufficient for its own intellectual activity. No further intervention or illumination is needed for our natural knowing. So, for the Roman Catholic understanding, after the fall, the imago dei, or the natural capacity of man, is, is still completely sufficient. It, it's integral. It's intact. You're missing a super-added gift. And so that's why they would argue, remember the antithesis, right? This is my understanding of the antithesis. Those in Adam are actually parasitic upon Christian theology. They're parasitic on this grounds. And Christian theologians, Christians, um, are not parasitic because they have an entire worldview that actually is supporting the unbelieving worldview. The unbelieving thought is parasitic on and is living on borrowed capital on Christian thought, on revelation on Christian um, truths. But for the Roman Catholic understanding, this is not the horizontal picture that you get. You get instead, again, this return here, you get a two-level structure of supernatural, supernature, and the natural. So this is the, the natural secular realm, which is to be left alone, so to speak. And then if you want to get um, the super-added gift of God, go to the church. And so, for the reform, let me try to say this another way. For the reform, right, there's an antithesis between sin and grace. Antithesis between Adam and Christ. For the Roman Catholic, it's no longer an antithesis between sin and grace, but rather a degree of lesser and greater. 
it is, it is completely good for you to go to Mass and live out your natural lives simply by enjoying the supernatural giftings of the Mass and the Lord's Supper. But if you want to have a greater piety and um, enter the Roman Catholic Church as a nun, enter the Roman Catholic Church as a priest, and you will enjoy uh, a distinct priesthood that um, is, is, a, is a different level of, um, of, of divine um, gifting. So this is why in the Roman Catholic perspective, um, apologetics becomes an endeavor by natural means alone. You don't need to appeal to scripture. You don't need to appeal to the church for, for the natural world to function. All you have to do is appeal to natural law. There's a lot to, to be said there, but I don't want to spend too long on it. So I hope it kind of, I want, I want us to see, um, like, maybe the last two weeks you've seen this as kind of like, well, yeah, this is just the Bible, man. Like, you know, everyone should believe this. It's obviously clear, right? But um, th- what we're trying to communicate here is a distinctly reformed uh, perspective on um, illumination, on grace, on apologetics. Any, any questions on that? Um, I think they'll probably just make, um, they'll, they'll probably say that their perspective is actually clearer in Scripture because they would, I think, say, um, well, look at how the Gentiles are prospering. You see, what, what makes the Israelites distinct, they would say, right? And this could sound familiar to us. I'm, I'm trying to be as charitable as I can be. What makes the Israelites distinct is the presence of God, right? The Gentiles are prospering in natural ways, but they are missing the supernatural gifting of God. So what the Israelites are there to do is not to communicate to the Gentiles how to live naturally. They're doing just fine. What the Israelites are there to do is to say what you're missing out is the true supernatural end for your existence, God. So they would argue precisely because they keep a natural secular sphere um, distinct from the supernatural, they can make the supernatural sphere extra special. There's something special and intrinsically beautiful about it that makes it absolutely sanctified and distinct from the natural world. They would say, for the Reformed, because you make everything about grace, there's nothing special about the church anymore because even the non-believer enjoys grace. You see? Um, so so they, would, they, would, they would argue that there is technically no such thing as a Christian form of culture. What you have is natural culture, and then you have a priesthood that mediates supernatural gifts to natural culture. There are some, of course, scholarly debates among Roman Catholics about this. So, you know, if you notice the title, Henri de Lubac, you know, Aquinas' notion of pure nature and the Christian integralism of Henri de Lubac. Henri de Lubac is a Roman Catholic himself. He would argue against this two-tiered view of um, Roman Catholicism. There's some debate about this. Um, so make that of what you will, but they still function, even Henri de Lubac, who says that there is a more integral, Christian integralism, there's more integral understanding of nature and supernature, he would still frame reality in terms of higher and lower. We don't have that kind of higher and lower in our reform worldview. We have a horizontalized antithesis. It's just a completely different framework to work with.
So, so an implication of this, and I'll just cover this super briefly, natural law or common grace. If it's natural law, then in the strict sense of the word, humanity's natural capacity is functioning completely properly. They're not living on borrowed capital. And so your task in the apologetic approach is simply to indicate that they need something more. You're functioning just fine, but you are missing something that, that, that could create a new level of existence for you. Common grace makes the apologetic approach quite different. Common grace says that you would never expect the unbeliever to agree with you. You're also trying to expose where they're dependent upon the Holy Spirit in every point. And here we'll just read Kamenk, um, the second quote there. While common grace provides hope that consensus can be found in the public sphere, it does not provide absolute and perfect certainty that it will be found. While Kuiper was extremely certain that the Holy Spirit was cosmically active in all faith and cultures, notice the Spirit is what accounts for um, the other cultures' existence and other faiths, bringing them together for moments of consensus and cooperation, Kuiper was never certain of what those moments of consensus would look like or how long they would last. Moreover, moments of consensus and cooperation were always just that, moments. Interfaith and intercultural moments of cooperation were always tenuous, temporary, and unpredictable. They were, with the help of the Holy Spirit, possible, but not always certain. A Christian pluralist's work for interfaith cooperation was driven by an uncontrollable and unforeseen hope in the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, not by a certainty in some sort of identifiable and universal human morality. Your task then is to hope for an appeal to the Spirit's work and hope for an appeal to the Holy Spirit's work in how other cultures and faiths are actually dependent upon the Spirit, not in, in, in a so-called self-evident, evidentialist, common human natural law. Because the moment you discuss about those commonalities, we would argue, basic definitions will always intrude and you have to debate those things and that inevitably brings you back to the antithesis. Questions? So what we've been presented with in the last three weeks is actually quite controversial. Maybe some of you are, have taken all these things for granted, but not so, not so. What? Oh, okay. Cool. How are you guys doing? Okay. Should we stand and stretch for a second? No. <laughs> okay. Um, any reflections, comments, thoughts? Maybe we'll pause there real quick, and then we'll cover like the first part of lecture three, and then we'll just cover lecture three next week. Um, the rest of lecture three next week. It's okay. Better to go in depth into some of these things rather than like skirt over it and then, you know. Questions and comments about all these things, implications you're thinking about maybe.
yeah, there, there's a big debate about that. And um, it could be a long, I don't know how to answer it in a short way. Um, for, for, for some, for Henri de Lubac, which I think is the better form of Catholicism, um, he would argue that heaven is your, um, the supernatural end of heaven is something that you were supposed to be destined for. Yes, so he would concede that. But for others, I think Bernard Mulcahy and other, other, other figures, they would argue that the natural end for humanity is the, the purgatory state. That the purgatory state is where you can um, uh, uh, create more merits for yourself so that you might reach the secondly order, see? So the supernatural end for the Roman Catholic state, even before the fall, is always by grace. Whereas we would argue, right, if Adam had obeyed God, and had eaten of the tree of good and evil, he would have attained the higher state of glory. But technically, he attained it by merit, right? He attained it by merit. He attained it not by grace, because grace presupposes sin. He attained it by merit in the sense where he's obeyed God and fulfilled the covenantal obedience, and therefore destroyed the serpent and could eat of the tree of life. And so he can attain God by virtue of his own obedience. For the Roman Catholic understanding, however, um, the supernatural end is always a product of grace. And they would critique us there, see? They would argue, for all your reform talk about grace, Adam was independent upon grace. We would have a more totalizing understanding of grace. See, so, so it's, it's, it's a complicated debate, and there, there, are very, there are very strong arguments for their position. Sure. In the sense whereby uh, they have more confidence that they can deliver a human being to human people. Mm-hmm. While, while us, it's like, you know, we all come up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see what, what where this is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would think so. That's why they would argue there's a confidence in their ability to ex- access natural law. Yeah. There's a confidence for them to access natural morality. And so... Let me just emphasize, you know, just now when I, when I read why common grace is not natural law, notice how Kaming says that when things are good for culture, when things are good for interfaith, dialogue, and cooperation, and peace, it's momentary. It's by the Holy Spirit. You don't expect it, right? Why? Because it's grace, you know? There, there isn't an expectation that people will function peacefully and cooperatively. Common, the common grace approach is an intrinsically... Um, uh, dependent approach, because we're saying we don't expect this to happen by means of natural ways. We expect that only if God, by his supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit, will produce um, a momentary and fragmentary kind of relative stability and peace. So we would expect brokenness, in a sense, um, but at the same time, we would also say we would expect an, an extra work of providence that, that could create this momentous event. So you're sensing something of the sentiments of, of Catholics and Reformed people. Yeah. And I think this is what undergirds it. Obviously, they haven't read Aquinas. And obviously, we haven't read Calvin, right? But, but that doesn't matter because centuries of teaching produces cultural lives, right? Um, and, and I think what you're sensing is the sentiments that have been produced by centuries of these abiding, deep structural differences.
and I don't want to I don't want to harp on this too much, respectfully, and it's too much. I also think that's why. Um, in the Roman Catholic understanding, there's less of an emphasis for the regular church attender to know theology. There's this sense in which um, just rely on the work of the Mass, right? And you, you're good, live your life, just come to Mass every week. There's, this, there's, there's, there's less of a sense, in other words, of the priesthood of all believers because they believe that the natural life is, is distinct. It's its own thing, you know? And, and, and it's okay to keep those two things separate. Oh, yeah, well, okay, yeah, no, no, it's good. No, no Christian specificity to it, and just like, it's just yeah. natural, it's just, well, well, what you just said there is what Kaming says, and, and the quote that I skipped, but now we're going to read. Um, so above Catholicism, I wrote a, a quote from Kamink from page 107 from his book. He says, the liberal dream of binding all faiths and cultures together under a universal moral language echoes, in many ways, medieval Catholic arguments for a universal natural law. Under natural law, medieval scholastics argued, God has embedded his moral laws throughout creation and moreover had written those laws on every human heart. Through the use of human reason, natural law theorists argued all people in all cultures could recognize the contours of God's natural laws. And so they would argue, and in the page before this, I, I wrote two pitfalls. There's the, the secular fact and nature versus value judgment divide, and then the Roman Catholic natural law versus supernatural faith divide. And both of these things actually have similar structures. In the, in the secular realm, right, you have this, this, this structure of facts and public knowledge. And then there's this private sphere of values. All right? And they would argue that in the realm of the public, just appeal to the facts keep your private values out of it. Keep what you do on Sunday out of it. And in the Roman Catholic judgments, there is a kind of similar two-tiered structure. And Kamen, this again, this is not my argument, but Kamen argues that the two really are um, functionally equivalent. Yeah, so, so good point. Yeah, there, yeah, part of Kamen's critique is um, the natural opposition, I think, can't account for cultural pluralism. And that's why he would argue, and Bavink would argue, that Roman Catholicism ends up um, romanticizing one culture, Rome. See, so there's, there's one culture that represents nature, just natural fact, natural law, natural culture. And then every other culture is a deviation from the true culture of nature. Um, so it's, it's hard, and, and at the same time, Western hegemony um, romanticizes and idolizes one form of culture, namely Western secularism. If you're not a tolerant, progressive uh, believer in the LGBT rights and all those sort of things, you are not um, natural, right? So there's a sense in which both of these kind of two-tier systems 
have an incapacity to assimilate and to um, um, comprehend even um, multiple cultures and multiple faiths. They end up reducing all things to unnatural. Anyway, but that's, again, there's a long discussion there to be had. Good, good observations, Jack. By the way, just a plug for, for Kaming's book, right? I, I love the book. It's called Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration. He's arguing that Christians have a different way from both, uh, from, from all three, Roman Catholicism, um, liberalism, and Islam. And um, the way we're different is that we're actually the only kind of worldview, and the only kind of people that can produce virtuous, tolerant people that democracy and pluralism needs. So um, he makes a compelling case. He argues against all these things in that book. I wrote about it in an, in an article recently. Um, I would really commend it to you. And he's also now a fellow for um, DC Center for Public Justice. So he's been nominated on all things, and he's, anyway, good. Comments, questions? How you guys all doing? Would you guys be good for like another 20 minutes or 15? Or like that's, you guys are just capped? Good, yeah, good, yeah. Okay. I'm always like, guy enough, dude. Okay. Good. Lecture three, guys, turn there. Boy. Um. Is this also permanent? Just push harder. Just push harder. Okay. You guys can edit all these comments out right in the recording. You know. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I probably did. Okay. Huh? How do you do that? Okay, okay, okay. All right, you can do that, Edgar. Thank you. All right. Um, <laughs> thank you, Edgar. All right. So let me just, let me just um, communicate right now the importance of our doctrine of God and our apologetics, right? I've argued so far that um, an apologetic that is faithful to Scripture is an apologetic that stands on God's covenant, and as you understand um, the realities of your faith, as you understand the gospel better, as you understand the Bible better, you're actually more equipped to defend the faith, right? You're actually more equipped to defend the faith. In other words, you don't need mastery over every directional worldview out there. All you need to do to be faithful to Scripture is know the God that you believe in, know your worldview well, and you'll be able to communicate that apologetics. This is very fruitful. Right? So, if it is true, remember in the first lecture, if it is true that it is a universal mandate for you to do apologetics, for you to defend the faith, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, if it is true that every Christian is called to do apologetics, it is not true, then, that apologetics is for the ones with the PhDs or the ones that can publicly debate people or the ones that are scholars and academics. That's very clean. Now, every person, every Christian, therefore, is equipped with everything that he needs to do apologetics well. So we're arguing, therefore, 
with the reformers the sufficiency of Scripture, sola scriptura, sufficiency of Scripture for doing apologetics well. Um, because every Christian is called to do it, God is, will equip you to do it if he's called you to do it. And so if you know your Bible well, if you know your God well, if you know your worldview well, if you know all those things um, and just walk wisely with unbelievers, you'll be able to do apologetics. So part of what I want to argue in the next uh, 10, 15 minutes and next week is that your particular doctrine of God, the fact that you believe in the Trinity and not merely a, a, a monadic singular God, and nor do you believe in many gods, give you the ability and the capacity to defend the faith in a, in a unique way and gives you resources to defend the faith in a unique way and also gives you a kind of confidence because when you realize this, you realize that most of the time when you come away um, and you meet unbelievers, most of their objections against the Christian God don't have anything to do with the Christian God. All you have to do is say, that's not the God I believe in. So uh, you can be more secure. You see what I mean? You don't have to face every objection as if every objection actually applies to you. And part of the apologetic method then is to simply to say, that's not the God that I'm in covenant with. That's not the God that I believe in. That's not the God that I put my faith in. And all of your objections against the Christian faith miss the mark. So there's a kind of confidence so that you're not tossed to and fro by every kind of objection out there to Christianity, right? For example, I mean, let's just give a quick example before we get into the material, right? If someone tells you, I don't believe in a God who just predestines um, innocent people to go to hell. What could you say to that? I don't believe in a God that throws innocent people to go to hell. Me neither, exactly. I don't believe in that either. None of us are innocent, man. All of us are sinners. And God knew our sin, and that's exactly what we deserve. Nobody gets uh, injustice. Some people get mercy. Some people get justice, right? So you notice, what you're doing there is saying, um, you're, you can actually ally yourself with the unbeliever and say, I don't believe in that kind of God either. Uh, how about this? I don't believe in a God who just hates our fun. Me neither, <laughs> right? Why do you think God creates taste buds? Why do you think God preserves cultural goods, Right? We can argue that that's not the God that I believe in. So most of your task in apologetics is really pointing to the real God. And most of the people, um, you realize, are objecting not to the real Christian God, but to a God that is completely um, someone that they're, they're ignorant about or suppressing. So I'm going to start with this quote by Brian Leftow in God and Necessity. Brian Leftow um, is, a, is a philosopher who believes in God. And in this book, um, he's a, a professor at Oxford University. In this book, he's very candid about this. In this book of natural theology, where he wants to argue for God's existence and to argue about God apart from Scripture, but only from nature alone, he admits this fundamental admission. He argues this. I give many arguments about God's, what, what God's perfect, perfection must look like. Sorry for the typo. But what God's perfection must look like. As I give them, I have a nagging fear that I'm just making stuff up. Oxford University Press, Oxford University professor. You might just be reading someone who's making stuff up. Not ideas, or sorry, our ideas of what it is to be perfect are inconsistent and flawed. And there is no guarantee that they match up with what God's perfection really is. You see, he's admitting right now that apart from divine revelation, your ideas of perfection, your ideas of what God must or ought to look like could be very flawed, could be very different from the true and real God. So most of the objections against Christianity are not really against the God we worship at all. 
And in other words, a fruit of the covenantal apologetic approach is that knowing our God well, we can simply demonstrate how God's real being eludes most of the popular objections against him. It eludes it. All you have to do is showcase this belief in the one true God. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go through the stuff on divine simplicity now, but I'm just going to sketch something for you, completely impromptu, so that you would come next week. Okay? All right? So, I want to argue that your belief in the Trinity really affects how you do apologetics. All right? You believe in a triune God who exists as one in essence and three in persons. You believe in this one being who's one in essence and three in persons. God exists as one, but unfolds himself in three persons. You believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's an absolute paradox, in other words, in the back of your reality. There is, um, what I'm trying to say here is that there is, in the back of all of existence, in the back of everything you know, in the back of all of reality, is a fundamental mysterious paradox between one and three. Fundamental mysterious paradox between one and three. There's nothing more absolutely basic than this paradox between one and three. God exists as one and three persons, and you're incapable of truly understanding him. So at the beginning of your faith is a fundamental mystery. Not only do you believe in one God in three persons, one in essence, three in persons, you also believe that God is a simple God. What do I mean by simple? Anybody of you know what I mean by simple? Not dumb. That's not it. Not easy either. Simple simply means that God is not made up of parts. Not only is this already kind of incomprehensible, you're trying to wonder, one in essence, three in persons. God is not like a fidget spinner, by the way. You don't just press it and then three spins, okay? You you have a simple God that says that God is not made up of parts. So it is not as if the Father is partly God, the Son is partly God, and the Spirit is partly God. It is not as if the Father is a part of God and the Spirit a part of God and Son a part of God. Rather, you have God who exists as Father, God who exists as Son, and God who exists as Spirit. These are not parts of God, because if God was composed of parts, that means God is not, what? Infinite. Because an infinite being is not a larger aggregate of finite parts. You can't get to infinity from finite parts that compose together to make an infinite being, right? Instead, you have a God who is simple and God who is infinite. That means he begins simply to exist as the infinite God who exists as one God in three persons, right? And God's infinity is not simply that he exists in time and space. God's infinity is not, like I said in the first lecture, a numerical infinity, as if there's an an eternal extension of numbers to the end and an eternal extension of time and numbers until uh, the beginning. But rather, you have a God who exists as one who transcends numerical infinity and as transcending everlasting time. God is in time and in space only because he transcends time and space. And technically speaking, in creation, there was no, before creation, there was no such thing as time. So God created, in a sense, not in time, but with time. Creation came with time. So these are intrinsically mysterious realities that you have to comprehend, that you have to try to confess, right? 
So this is in the back of all of your beliefs and all of your confession. And if God is a simple God, let me also just tease that out a little bit more. If God is a simple God and he's not composed of parts, right, um, that means he's also independent. What do I mean by this? If God is simple, that means his knowledge is identical to himself because he's not composed of parts. His knowledge is not a part of him that he gains, and his wisdom is not a part of him that he gains. His love is not a part of him that he gains, right? If he's a truly a simple God, all of his knowledge is not dependent upon anything outside of himself, but purely from within himself. If you say, right, if you say, as we popularly do, um, God, for example, I don't know if you guys say this, but God learned or God foresaw or God found out that I committed a murder or I would have faith in him or whatever. If you say things like God learned or God found out or God changed his mind on the basis of new information, right? What you're saying is God had a portion of knowledge and then he learned something new and then changed his mind on the basis of that something new that he learned. That means you've made a fundamental distinction between something that God just learned and God's knowledge in himself. So God is no longer a simple God. So even his knowledge of everything else is not something he learns or gains of anything new, but he merely saw in and of himself. Everything that he knows is from within himself, right? God does not become love by virtue of creation. God does not become wise by virtue of creation. God simply is love, and God simply is wise. That's what the divine understanding of simplicity means. Okay, so that's just a sketch of everything, okay? In the back of all everything that you believe is a fundamental mystery. And here's a fruit of this understanding. And I'm going to cover this again in two hours next week, so don't worry if you don't get everything now. A fruit of this understanding is your task as the Christian apologist is to preserve mystery. Is to preserve mystery. And your temptation as a Christian apologist is to water down mystery to become God, to make God more palatable or more intelligible to the expectations of the unregenerate mind. Your task as a Christian apologist is to preserve mystery, and your temptation as a Christian apologist is to water down the claims of mystery to make God more palatable, to make God more intelligible, more um, understandable to the non-regenerate mind. If you try to make God more palatable, for example, by, by watering down the mystery of how God is sovereign over your freedom, because the non-Christian mind can't understand that, and you, just, you start to say things like, well, God does not control everything that comes to pass, but instead responds to what you do. On the basis of the new information that he gets from what you will, you've compromised God's absolute simplicity. In other words, your task as an apologist is to resist that temptation as well. You're going to be tempted to say, well, that's not really uh, what God is like. You know, I don't really understand that either. Let me try to make that logically make sense to you. I met someone recently um, who, who told me that you've got to get rid of God's simplicity. You've got to get rid of God's simplicity and say that the Trinity is really three different beings. And the oneness of God is basically a, a, a composition of God's three different beings working as a social unit. That's heresy. That's tritheism. That's been rejected by the early Christian church. Why did he believe this? Well, I pushed him. Why would you do that? Why would you make 
not God at one in essence and three in persons, but God three in being, one in social unit. Why would you do that? And he argued, well, because that would conform to logic. I can make sense of that. You see, your task as a Christian apologist is to resist all that kind of temptation and say, in the back of all things is a mystery. And so therefore, here's another fruit. Your worldview is the only worldview that can account for the paradoxes and mysteries of life. If you believe in rationalism and you believe that everything must conform to reason and natural law, apart from God, right, you will want to make everything neat and categorical with a fine logical distinctions that map out all of reality. And guess what? You'll fail. You're not going to be able to do that. There will be tensions and paradoxes in your life as a, as a result of living in a broken world, and not only that, as a result of living in a finite world that you simply cannot understand because you are yourself a finite. Only the Christian worldview says you can rest in not knowing everything because God does, and God is mysterious. And if you can't comprehend God, you can rest in the fact that he comprehends all things and not you. These are all fruits of the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to get to it next week. And if we get to it, if we get to this, we'll talk about Christianity and Islam. Because in the back of the, the debate between Christianity and Islam, if you look at the intrinsic internal debates within Islam, they have a conundrum where they say, if God is transcendent, then how come we can talk about God? Because God is completely different. How come we can talk about God? How do human words and human language map out who God is in and of himself? God's being is transcendent. And if they say God's being comes down to us, then in what way he's transcendent? Then he's not transcendent anymore. That means he's related to us. That means he's no longer transcendent. He's imminent, right? But you see, that's because in Islam, you don't have a distinction between essence and persons. When Jesus Christ came in the form of human flesh, it is not God's being that condescends, it's God's person, the second person in the Trinity that condescends. You, in other words, because of your triune faith, have a particular grammar that allows you to say, God in the second person can condescend and reveal himself while he remains transcendent in his being. That's another implication of the doctrine of the Trinity. You can actually start to say that God is both transcendent and imminent. It's a paradox but you can make sense of the paradox somehow. You can confess it. God is both sovereign and at the same time relatable. God is both three and one. You're responsible, but at the same time, God is in control. Christ is both divine and human. And the back of Christianity is all these paradoxes. So why are you surprised that you encounter mysteries in your knowledge? All of philosophy is grasping and, and groping through these mysteries. Right? There's a paradox between how your consciousness supervenes on your brain. There's a paradox between how mental images that you have corresponds with physical realities. There is a paradox between um, communal life and the diversities of culture and the unity of human nature. There's a paradox between the diversity of gender but the union of marriage. All of these fundamentally mysterious realities point to your fundamental faith in the one God who is himself mysterious and paradoxical. So, okay, that's next week. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this amazing faith that you have revealed yourself to us in the second person in the Trinity. We pray, Lord God, for patience and for wisdom and for um, 
being able to um, accept these things, being able to um, embrace the fact that we're finite and we're absolutely dependent upon your spirit and your wisdom. And you are the one who comprehends all things and not us. So, Father, help us rejoice in these things. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.